The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, this evening as we prepare for the celebration of the supper, I'd like to call your attention to two passages of Scripture. Uh, First of all, to Luke 22, verse number 18, and then to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And so if you'll find both of those scriptures, those are the main text for the message tonight. Uh, The first text in Luke came to my mind while I was thinking of a question that Hazel asked me a few years ago. Uh, I was looking over some things about what I might preach for this evening's message, and I was reading over this particular passage, and this question uh, came to my mind that she had asked. Uh, I was preaching a Lord's Supper sermon a few years ago, and we read these particular words of Jesus. Now, uh, let's just back up here, if you will, if you found Luke 22 to verse number 14, and we'll begin there because this is where the institution of the supper begins in Luke's account. So Luke 22 and verse number 14, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Verse number 18 is the text. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now the question that Hazel asked me those many years ago was what did Jesus mean when he said that he would not drink with his disciples again until the kingdom of God would come? And that seems like a a very easy question to answer. And yet as I've looked at this scripture and read many different commentators about it, There's hardly anybody that has anything to say about this particular verse, or you don't really find too much discussion about it. But I will say that I think that what Jesus has in his mind is the millennial kingdom. And uh, a thing that, that seems to impress me about the millennial kingdom is that there's very likely going to be a return to animal sacrifices during the time of that kingdom. That seems to be the indication in Ezekiel chapter 43, where the prophet there discusses the temple in that day, the temple of the millennial kingdom. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to go through those scriptures tonight, but I do want to comment on what Jesus was talking about and what he meant and why he would have said something about the kingdom in this particular place. Uh, First of all, let me say that I do believe that Jesus is talking about the kingdom in the millennial age. I don't think that the subject here is heaven, because I don't think that the disciples would have understood it that way. But they were very, very concerned about 
the restoration of Israel's kingdom and any information that Jesus could give them in that regard was welcome information. Uh, in just a few hours, they were going to see Jesus die and their hope of the kingdom would be gone. Uh, without knowledge of him, and you remember this incident, a couple of the disciples didn't know who Jesus was. They met him after he had risen from the dead. There were two of them that met him on the road to Emmaus, and they spoke to Jesus, and they said to him, we had hoped that this would have been the one that would have redeemed Israel. And they despaired because they thought that when Jesus died, that the kingdom was through, that it was all done with. There wasn't going to be a kingdom and they thought that Israel would never rise again as a powerful nation. So I think that Jesus told them that he would drink of this cup again in order to keep their hopes alive, that the promise of his kingdom was still very, very real, even though he would go to the cross and he would die. Well, the thing that I want to concentrate on uh, for the next few minutes is the promise of Christ's return. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said that this is something that we do need to remember. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember Christ's death. And he said, until he comes again. So he's put into our minds that we are to also remember that Christ is coming again for us. Now, forgiveness at the cross, that's a wonderful thing for us to preach about and to think about. Uh, remembering the price that Christ paid for our sins, that is inspiring to us. But his redemption is not complete until he returns to claim those that he died to redeem. Now tonight what I'd like to do is to look at some Old Testament scriptures that anticipate the future event that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. Now I want to look at that particular scripture first before we go to the Old Testament. And we're going to see in Revelation 19 what the Old Testament writers, the prophets, were so excited about and it was this event that's recorded here that John gave us in Revelation chapter 19. You're familiar with these scriptures? Revelation 19 verse 11 where John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that scripture is about the Lord's return in power and glory. This comes at the end of, uh, or comes I should say beyond the rapture, and it comes beyond the seven years of tribulation. And actually the book of Revelation doesn't deal with the rapture. I think that we find it in the white spaces between chapters 3 and 4. Uh, but we're moved immediately when we get into chapter 4 of Revelation into this time of tribulation. And Revelation chapter 19 comes at the end of the tribulation and that's the time when Christ is going to come and he will defeat his enemies to cl and claim his crown and set up his kingdom where he will reign in perfect peace for 1,000 years. 
Uh, very often in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets look beyond the suffering and the death of Christ, and they look beyond uh, the church age, and they blend the first and second advents into one vision of this glorious kingdom. And that's why the disciples never seemed to understand that Jesus would die. Uh, the Old Testament prophecies are somewhat difficult to understand on that point. And yet the Passover that they had just celebrated with Jesus here in Luke chapter 22, and the Passover that had been celebrated for hundreds of years, even thousands of years or 1,500 years before this particular time, that, that Passover pointed them to the fact that Jesus would actually die. The Passover pictures his death. And I would submit to you that here in Luke twenty-two eighteen, that Jesus had that in mind and that uh, Jesus gave the disciples the promise here that even though he would die, his kingdom is not going to be thrown off track. And so what they expected, expected would happen will happen. It wouldn't be circumvented by his death. And we have that same promise relived every time that we come to the supper and partake of the cup in the supper because we know that we're going to be doing this until his kingdom comes. Now, what we want to do tonight is to combine Revelation 19 with some Old Testament scriptures to see what the Old Testament prophets thought when they envisioned the glory of God. What is it that they had on their minds when, when they thought about this promise that God had given? Now, our first order of business would be to understand the need for this kingdom. Now, the Old Testament prophets really weren't very much concerned about what the rest of the world was doing. They only cared about what the rest of the world did as it related to what Israel did. They're always looking at the nation of Israel. To them, all of history flows through the nation of Israel, and that's the way the entire scriptures continue to reveal the future. Israel is always the centerpiece of history. And as you read redemptive history throughout the Bible, you always find this. The question is, what is God going to do with Israel? Now, the rest of the world matters only in relation to that and the relationship to Israel. And so what you can't do is you can't get rid of Israel from switching from Old Testament to New Testament and saying, well, Israel's gone now. Now, the New Testament only shows us that Israel has been set aside for a while, but in the end, it's all going to come back to this. What is God going to do with Israel? Now, when the Old Testament deals with the downward spiral of the world into sin, where is it that it takes us for the hope of a remedy? Well, in the book of Genesis, we find mankind fallen. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we find the solution is there. And the solution is that Israel is going to produce a king that would redeem the world and defend Israel forever. Sin is going to be checked, and Christ is going to rule over it. And you might mark the usage of the term Christ. Christ means Messiah. It relates to the hope of Israel, to an anointed king who is going to deliver them. So every time that you use the name Jesus Christ, it should call to your mind Christ's kingdom. It should call to your mind the millennial kingdom of Christ and the nation of Israel. Now, that is a point that wasn't lost on the disciples. It's not a promise that came to them lately. It wasn't a surprise as they ate the supper with Jesus and listened to him. Now, having Jesus to eat with them 
would not have been very spectacular. They wouldn't have been interested in it at all if it hadn't been that Jesus had so much to say about the kingdom. What enamored them and made them want to get close to him is the kingdom. Now, it's like a person would want to get close to the president and follow him every day and be taken into his confidence. And so the disciples had this sense of satisfaction that they are close to the one who is the king of this new kingdom. They're close to the one who is declared to be the son of God by signs and wonders, and then also by the ultimate sign, which is his resurrection from the dead. So this isn't a late promise that they've heard. They didn't just hear about the kingdom when Jesus began to talk about it. In fact, the scriptures go straight to the kingdom and the promise of the kingdom before you even get two and a half chapters into the scripture. Well, where do we see that? Oh, the prophecy, the first prophecy is in Genesis 3.15. This is the prophecy of the bruised head and the bruised heel. You're familiar with this also, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The promise or the prophecy of the kingdom is found in the last part of the verse. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, it there should be translated as he, it or he, that is the seed of the woman, which is another name for the Lord Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman is going to be bruised by the serpent, the prophecy says. He would receive a wound, but what he would not receive is a fatal blow. His heel would be wounded. That's a reference to hindrance, not to defeat. He would be stricken down by death on the death on the cross, but the cross was only temporary. What Satan would do is only hinder the work of God. He's not going to shut God's work down, and he'll only hinder God to the extent that God allows it. And so the cross was not final, it was not fatal, it was not fatal to God's plan, because Christ triumphed over death. He was raised from the tomb. But most importantly for us tonight in in this study is that first phrase, it shall bruise thy head. Because the blow that Christ delivers is a fatal blow. In the head, there is life. The poison of the serpent is in the head, and the head will be crushed. Well, when is that going to happen? Well, Revelation 19 is written for this purpose. The seed of the woman is going to come with an army from heaven, an army that's clothed in white, which is the righteousness of the saints. This is an army that is full of believers, and those believers are you and me that have trusted in Christ, and we're going to come back with an army of angels of millions and millions and millions, and what we're going to do is to crush the head of the serpent. Now, the third chapter of Genesis is the earliest prophecy. It's the earliest allusion that we have in Scripture to this coming kingdom, and God's intent of that is revealed less than 1,500 words before we get further into the Holy Writ. Man fell, and then God immediately let him be not, let it be known that help is on the way, that a king is going to come, and he is going to end sin's tyranny forever. Now, I don't intend tonight to go in a chronological, into a chronological review of the prophecies concerning the kingdom. There's not enough time tonight or a dozen or two dozen or whatever Sunday nights to do that. This is just a minute sampling of them. But I do want to look at the next one that comes in the order of occurrence. 
But oddly enough, we don't find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. And that's the prophecy of the tens of thousands. This is in Jude, verses 14 and 15. And it's the prophecy of Enoch, a man who lived just seven generations from Adam. Jude writes about it. He tells us this in Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now that is simply a remarkable prophecy because there is no prophecy of Enoch in the Old Testament. Some have tried to make one up. There is a spurious book that contains the prophecies of Enoch, but there isn't any such thing in the Old Testament. Nothing in the Old Testament canon about Enoch in this particular prophecy. God actually revealed this prophecy in the New Testament, and it is attributed to Enoch, a man who is a righteous man who's spoken of in Genesis chapter 5. And he was a good man. He was an especially good man because the Scripture says he walked with God. Among all the people that were in the world, this is mentioned of Enoch. He walked with God. And he was special because he was above and beyond all other men. And he became only one of two men that were taken into heaven without dying. Genesis 5, 23 and 24 says, And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And that's all that's said about Enoch in the Old Testament besides his genealogy. And noticeably absent here is any prophetic statement that Enoch made. And so that becomes very interesting to us because we wonder, how does Jude, all the way over in the New Testament, how does he know about this prophecy of Enoch? And then Enoch is also very interesting because his translation into heaven without dying could very well be a reference to what happens to us who are alive when Jesus Christ comes again. That we will be taken into heaven without dying. And perhaps God has given this prophecy to show this is what's going to happen when Christ comes again. But we still have that looming question in our mind, where did Enoch learn about this prophecy? Oh, he must have received it directly from the Lord because there isn't anything written previously about it. There isn't any oral tradition that goes along with it. Enoch was translated and Jude knew this information. Jude knew about the tens of thousands. And maybe it happened this way, that Enoch was just like Elijah, taken up into a chariot of fire. And as he was going up, he may have shouted, We're coming back. The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. That might have been the prophecy of Enoch. But in any case, his prophecy is about Revelation chapter 19, that Christ is coming to claim his crown. Well, then the third prophecy that I want to share with you came at a very special time. Usually there are significant events that are happening at the time when there is a renewal of a prophecy. And this one comes at the time when Israel was about to be established as a nation. And this is the prophecy of the scepter of Shiloh. Genesis 49, verse number 10. The scripture, or rather the scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
Now, the occasion for that prophecy was the blessing that Jacob gave to his son Judah just before Jacob died. The twelve tribes of Israel, as you know, are the twelve sons of Jacob. Judah is the one, the son who's at the head of the tribe of Judah. He's the namesake for that tribe. And he is the head of the tribe from which the kings of Israel would be born. So Judah is the tribe of kings. And as the scriptures are very clear, Jesus came from Judah. And the scepter that you see in verse number 10, that is a sign of authority. Christ must come from Judah in order to be validated as the king of Israel. There is no Jew that is going to accept a king who didn't come from Judah and one who is not descended from Israel's greatest king, and that would be King David. And so the scripture says that the Messiah is the son of David, and that's the very cry that rose up from the people on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week. He entered into the accolades of the people who shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The scepter is the sign of his authority, the authority that he claimed in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And so the scripture says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. That's a beautiful word, Shiloh. Very interesting word. The meaning of it is obscure. Almost everyone agrees that it has something to do with peace. Some have suggested that the meaning of it is prince of peace, and that would fit perfectly with Isaiah's prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, where he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. So the scepter is a scepter of ruling authority, and Christ will come to rule in perfect peace. Now we kind of have to switch our thinking a little bit as we look at our subject tonight, and that is how is this peace going to come? The peace does not come easily. Chapter 19 in Revelation is a chapter about war. It's about bloody, nasty, brutal war. It says that Christ treads the uh, winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And it's not until you come to this serious beatdown in Revelation 19 that there is any peace. How does that peace come? Well, it's an enforced peace. Jesus ensures that there will be peace because he will rule unruly nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is a man of peace, but he does it in a way that we might not expect. So Shiloh, then, is a millennial reference. It's a kingdom reference, and there's not going to be any peace until then. Now, in keeping with that thought, we move on to another scripture that's directly related to the events of Revelation 19. And this is number four, which we'll call fury and fighting. Now, if you would, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 63. And if you want to see the Old Testament and the New Testament tied together then this is a scripture you can mark down as the Old Testament that was concealed. What is the meaning of this text in 
We don't find out a lot about it until we get into the New Testament that tells us exactly what this text is about. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. And here we have a series of questions and answers. Verse number 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? And here's the answer. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, or here's the answer rather, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel? That's the next question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? And the answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, and the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Now Isaiah gave that prophecy long before the first advent of Christ long before Jesus' birth and his death. It's beyond the 2,000-year church age. It's all the way to the time of the second advent. And the Apostle John was given his revelation of Christ. And of course, John was a very ardent student of the Old Testament. He had only the Old Testament scriptures to preach, and so he knew them well. And can you imagine how thrilling that it must have been for him to see Isaiah's prophecies leap off the page in living color. Because in his vision, he saw the blood-stained garments, just as Isaiah described. He saw a wine press, and that's emblematic of the horrible slaughter that will take place at Armageddon. And so the fighting and the fury that mark the king's arrival are here in this passage. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. Isaiah 63 is about the carnage of Armageddon. So John and Isaiah saw the same things. The nations are going to be brought to a place of judgment by divine fiat. God drives them there. He gathers them into one place where he's going to stomp them like grapes in a wine vat. He crushes them until his garments are splattered with their blood. Now notice the vesture dipped in blood in Revelation 19.13 is not Christ's blood. His blood was already shed centuries before this. This is not the blood of his cross. This is the blood of Christ's enemies. And this is what happens when the head of the serpent is crushed. It's not a pretty sight. It's not one that most people think about when they think of Jesus. Instead, what they have in their minds is the docile lamb, the one that kept his mouth shut and went to the cross without speaking a word. But here we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the lion that returns and he roars as he devours his prey. He treads the winepress. He stomps on evil, sinful men. He sprinkles their blood on his garments. And he will deliver that crushing blow to Satan's head. Don't hold your breath waiting for Osteen to preach this. He, if he won't preach on hell, he won't preach on on sin or a bloody cross, he's not going to speak of a Messiah king wielding a sword of vengeance and standing there on top a heap of millions of corpses. Peace, peace, people say. 
And Jesus is all about peace. But there is no peace until this happens. Now next, we have a prophecy about gathering and gluttony. It just goes on. We move on from the book of Isaiah to another great prophet. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel was an exilic and a post-exilic prophet. That means that he uh, preached during the time of the exile of Judah when they were taken captive by the Babylonians. And it was during his lifetime, and he preached after that as well, but it was during his lifetime that the temple in Jerusalem was torn down, the city walls of Jerusalem were torn down. And you can be sure of this, that when all of that happened, Israel was in vengeance mode. And one of the most morbid, imprecatory psalms was written during that period. Psalm 137, the last two verses of that psalm say, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That's a brutal thing. Israel said that they would be happy to see the children of Babylonians taken and swung by their feet and their heads bashed against stone walls. We're talking about people here that are looking for vengeance. And that was the mood when Isaiah prophesied these things about God's kingdom. Now first let me read to you Revelation 19, 17 and 18 where John says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Now look at Ezekiel 39, verse number 17. Did John see the same Old Testament scene? Does he see it come alive? Well, let's compare that prophecy to what John saw, Ezekiel, or to what Ezekiel saw, Ezekiel 39, verse 17. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, all them fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots and mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day and forward. And there is another Armageddon prophecy Things are going to get awfully bad before there is any peace. Don't look for any peace until you see flocks of carrion-eating birds circling overhead and descending on the battlefields that are filled with corpses. You wait until you see vultures and eagles and hawks and ravens, and not until they come and pick out the entrails of dead men will the world see peace. Why? Because they've been flattened. 
because they've been crushed. And that's why they won't raise a finger any longer against the king of kings. They dare not do it. And that's why there is peace. Well, you didn't think you'd hear about that in a Lord's Supper sermon, did you? The supper that we have before us tonight is quite a different supper than that. That's not what we're looking at on the table. But Jesus is the one who brought this up. He's the one that talked about the kingdom. And all these things, according to Scripture, will take place before that kingdom is established upon the earth. Now, let me give you just one more. If you'll turn to Joel chapter 3. We have Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Next comes Joel. And we skipped over Daniel. There's so much in Daniel that we'd have to take another night to talk about that. But in Joel chapter 3... There is the prophecy of the sickle and shaking. Now often the Old Testament combines the period of the tribulation and the final destruction of the wicked into one great scene. And that's what we see here in Joel chapter 3. Joel 3 and verse number 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full and the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great." multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Lord is near in the valley of decision. I'll stop there just a moment. That passage of Scripture is so often preached as a cry for people to turn to the Lord and to make a decision for Him, but that's not what this passage is talking about at all. Decisions have already been made. This is the Lord calling the, these armies of the world to his place where he's going to destroy them all. He's already made a decision. And that's what it's speaking of, multitudes in the valley of decision. Verse 15, the sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel, so shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. Now what we're reading here is about the gathering of Gentile nations that will follow the Antichrist and the persecution of Israel. Now remember again that Israel is prominent Israel controls the flow of end-time prophecy. So you persecute Israel and you're going to be damned. Now the followers of the Antichrist are brought to the, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. Now, where is this valley of Jehoshaphat? Well, from the top of Mount Carmel, where Elijah met the prophets of Baal, you can see this beautiful, fertile valley that stretches out before you for miles. It very well might be the place that's described in Exodus that's called the land that's flowing with milk and honey. And that's because in this great valley that's there, there's all kinds of abundant crops that grow. It's also known as the Valley of Megiddo. It's known as the Valley of Jezreel and also the Plain of Esdraelon. 
And all of those run together and they produce this 200-mile swath of valleys that are filled with these abundant crops. But when this time comes, I can promise you that it's not going to flow with milk and honey like they saw in the book of Exodus. Instead, here is going to be a river of blood. And this is the place that is God's winepress. And there he's going to gather all the nations for a different type of harvest. So the scripture says, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Sin is filled up to the max. The earth is ready to burst out with the ripeness of destruction. You remember that in the book of Isaiah, there is a prophecy of peace in the millennial kingdom. And there it says that swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. Do you remember that? And yet here we have the exact opposite. There it says in Isaiah, nation will not lift up sword against nation. But here's the opposite. Notice verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And so farming instruments, peaceful instruments, are going to be transformed into weapons of war. And so you don't look for any peace until you see fowls that are eating flesh and until you see tractors that are turned into tanks. Can you imagine that all of this is in the background of Jesus' statement of Luke twenty-two eighteen, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And so we sit here on Lord's Supper nights and we sit here very reverently. We sit here very quietly and calmly and we drink of the cup. But I can promise you that there is going to be bedlam there will be mayhem, there will be shouting and screaming, there's going to be cries of agony when Jesus crushes heads and makes his promise real that he's going to reign forever and ever. That's a picture that I'm happy to present to you. I rejoice in that picture. There's good news in the supper. You think about the kingdom, sin is defeated forever. Sin is an awful thing, do you know that? It takes awful measures to get rid of sin. That's why no Christian should ever live in sin. God hates it. And you see it in these scriptures, how much that God hates sin. He doesn't want his people in sin. And this is what it takes to get rid of it. Uh, just, the, just the other day, I was reading that some, someone, uh, something that someone wrote and complaining about what people like us teach, that uh, there's too much wrath of God in what we teach. There's no love of God in what we teach. And they say, that's wrong. You've got to preach the love of God. And so we're too angry all the time. Well, I'm not any more angry than God is angry. We're angry about sin. And we come to the supper tonight to partake of this because we love God, He loves us, and He gave us this to remember what He did at the cross. We have to preach the wrath of God as well. It's in the Scriptures. It's all over the Scriptures. It's up and down the Scriptures. This is what it takes for God to get rid of sin. So I'm happy to present it to you. Christ arose from the grave to give victory over sin. And that's the good news that we have in the supper. And this is why you need to fear the vengeance of the Almighty God because he is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so the picture is here that things are going to get very, very bad for the world. Sinners today think that they have the upper hand. Oh, they're going to do just anything that they want to do. They want to live any way that they want to live. They're the ones that are in control. But here we see God is gathering. God is gathering. God is hurting, pushing people towards this, the wine press, where they're going to be trampled in the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, 
and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So behold, the Lamb of God is transformed into the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening with all, looking at the scriptures and thinking about how horrible this time is going to be, how much that you hate sin and what you have done to rid the world of it. Lord, we just thank you that you are going to be done with sin forever. We'll never have to live in a sin-cursed world any longer because you're coming to crush the head of the serpent. So we are so thankful, Lord, that we're able to look at this and read about this and think about the wonderful things that you're going to do for us when you return. Help us to remember this, Lord, as we sit here serenely and we take the supper quietly. Help us to be thinking, Lord, of how much that you've done for us to save us from our sins. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Now, before we take the supper tonight, we, we've seen all these fighting scenes. And um, what I'd like for us to do is just calm a little bit. Get your nerves calmed down a little bit if you're excited about what I've said. And I don't want to diminish anything that I've said tonight. Everything that I've told you is just as true as we are sitting here tonight, just as real as us sitting here tonight. Jesus is the one who made the reference to the kingdom. I didn't make that reference. He did it himself. Jesus promised that he would do this again with his disciples in his kingdom. And to do it, it's necessary that he die. And to do it, it's necessary that these things are going to happen in the future. And so we are to remember Christ's death until he comes again. And I would think that after listening to the sermon tonight, that we would be, be very eager to do what comes next. Christ is coming in righteousness, and so I would think that you want to make sure that you are righteous before you partake of this supper. I would think that you would be anxious to ask forgiveness for your sins and to be sure that you don't take the body and the blood of the Lord unworthily. Paul said, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So before we sing our communion hymn, let's take just a moment of silent prayer to confess our sins before we partake of the supper. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.